Peter and Minda to come up and join me. Um, for those of you who have been tracking, we um, have been going through the book of Ephesians, and we are now at the end of chapter 5, starting also into chapter 6. And uh, so we're going to be looking at relationships. Now let me just, by way of reminder, kind of put into context the significance of what we're talking about today. Um, I'm going to be sharing on a few of these specific relationships. Uh, we're, we're looking at family. We're looking at, um, as in husbands and wives, as well as, thank you, buddy, as well as um, relationships in the workplace. All of this is important, um, and all of it's important for all of us. So if you happen to not be a wife in this group this morning, it is important that we all understand the biblical concept and, and pattern that God has given for wives, for husbands, for children, so that we understand this incredibly important uh, thing of family, and also how we conduct ourselves in the workplace. And can I say we might have our toes stepped upon this morning? In a good way. I want my toes stepped upon. So um, what we've been looking at and what Paul, the apostle, does in the first three and really the first three and a half chapters is goes into identity. In other words, who God has made us to be. And uh, these lofty theological realities, um, but ultimately it culminates with bringing it down home into earth. In other words, because of what Jesus accomplished, not just some eternal salvation that matters into eternity, but, but, but what he has accomplished to cause uh, and effect a change called, ultimately, the kingdom of heaven coming into our lives and manifesting here on earth. So we're looking at how these great things of what Jesus has accomplished for us, how it begins to affect how we live on this earth. We looked at morality and kind of behavioral things not law, not legalism, but the key ways of the kingdom. Last week, and again, this week we're looking at relationships. So if you would, uh, <coughs> excuse me, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to start with the husband and wife. I'm going to uh, speak into the husband issue, and then Minda's going to speak into the wife, and we'll go on from there. But it says in Ephesians 5, starting in the 22nd verse, wives... Submit to your own husbands. I just lost half the crowd right there. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. And actually, let's start there. I'm going to speak into this issue now. Husbands, love your wives. Amen. <laughs> The issue there, the word love, is a one that the, the word translated into our Bible as love, the original Greek word is agapeo. I would say most of us probably are familiar with agape. There are three Greek words that primarily would be translated into English as love, and that's the limitations of the English language. We say love in a very general sense. It can mean a whole lot of things, but in Greek... Koine Greek, we, there was uh, eros, which would speak of erotic, sensual, romantic love. There was phileo, which would speak of like a brotherly love, my ch chumminess. And then there was agape, there is agape, which speaks of unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love. That's the word that uh, Paul is using to describe how, he's to, how husbands are to love their wives. Now, uh, it's, it, in other words, if it's selfish, sacrificial, and unconditional, it's about actually giving, not what you get. Husbands, love your wives. Um, this, after roughly, I don't know, 2006, 16 years of pastoral ministry that I've been involved in, and dealt with many marriages, and some which have been successful, and some which sadly have been unsuccessful, I can tell you those that are successful it is all based on this word right here, giving rather than getting. And those that have failed, it's the exact same thing. Can I say, can I step on our toes a little bit, you and I inherently are selfish. <laughs> and oftentimes when we get into a relationship, it is because of eros. We think the person looks good. We like the way they make us feel. 
there's an emotional thing, and all of that may be a sense of adoration for the person, but it's actually more about what we get from them. And two to three years into a marriage, you find that does not sustain a marriage. We need agape. And so in the marriage relationship, there's almost like a perfect foil. A husband is to give something to the wife called love, and there are things that she needs from the husband, and the wife also gives things to the husband. Both of them want the same things, but there are certain things I want more than she wants and certain things that she wants and needs more than I want and needs. Does that make sense? And only I can give what she wants and needs, and only she can give me what I want and need. And at some point, if she fails to give me what I legitimately want and need, my heart begins to turn off to wanting to give her what she wants and needs. And that can, it's like this beautiful cycle that can stop right there. If you want to see this cycle become the beautiful chain reaction that it's supposed to be, somebody has to do their part. Selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally. And I would say, because, as we read in the scripture, the husband is the leader, it would follow that the husband should be the one to break up that logjam. So, uh, let's, let's read on. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. Weighted, weighted words here. Just a couple points quickly. Kingdom leadership, which is the role of a husband. There is a leadership dynamic. Not domineering, servant leadership. True kingdom leadership is based upon sacrificial responsibility. Love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church, one would ask. Christ died for the church, being holy. He is holy. He died being holy for those who were still sinners. In other words... His love is not based upon the merit of the recipient. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You do your part regardless, even when she's not doing her part. Sorry, I'm pointing at you, but you're my wife. Do we follow? How did Christ love it? He died for it. It's a love that's not based upon merit. So I would say if kingdom leadership is based upon sacrificial responsibility— then in true leadership decisions, if, if, if the husband is kind of charting the course, it's not to say that only husbands make decisions. A wise husband knows <laughs> that the, it is not good for man to be alone. <laughs> and that's why God created uh, the other expression of himself. God created us in his image, male and female. Both are expressions of the fullness of, of the Godhead. And if we're wise, we are going to lean heavily on the wisdom and the input of our, of our wives. But at the end of the day, the, the accountability rests on the shoulders of the husband. And if that's the case, I would say if we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church, then every decision that we're making, ask ourselves the question, husbands, who benefits from this decision? Is it what is best for me, what's most comfortable for me, or is it with a view of giving to my wife and my family what's best for them? We're talking about biblical pattern and order of how God has designed this thing to work. Uh, and can I say, I forgot to say this earlier, why do you need to know this? Because it's good for us to know all the roles so we can all work together in our various roles. But some of you may not be a husband, but perhaps you have influence with other people in your lives who are husbands or who have husbands, and we need to be able to know God's word pertaining to things so that we can help other people. Discipleship. Discipleship, exactly. So he, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might, that he might. Those words indicate that when Christ gave himself for her, he had a vision and a goal of what would happen as a result. He did not give himself for the church into a vacuum of just empty obedience. It was... He knew that if he goes to the cross, that something is going to happen as a result for this church that he loves. And let's see, read what, what, what might. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What is we saying here? He died for the church so that she could become 
back to where God had originally intended in the book of Genesis. Back into that holy place. Christ died to redeem us back to our original intent. That his death was good for his wife, the bride, the church. His death was good for her, but the idea is that he might present her to himself. There is personal benefit that Jesus had in dying for the church. He got, he, there's a part of it that's, that's for him. And so husbands, whether you're in this room or whether your husbands out there, they were going to hear this vicariously through you. The, the sacrifice, the sacrificial leadership that we make that is in our wife's best interest turn around to being in our ultimate best interest as well. It goes on to say, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And so I have a body, and I inherently, I don't hate my own body. I nourish and cherish it. That means if I'm hungry, guess what I go do? I go feed it. If I, in the morning, I, you'll all be happy that I'm wearing clothes to protect my body, to keep it warm. If I hurt myself, I bandage myself. I take care of my own body. The moment I became married, I became one flesh with this woman. Now I have my own needs that I just mentioned, but there's also needs that she has that are not just my needs and her needs. Her needs are now one with me. And whether they originate in my heart or not, they are as much my needs as hers. It's my responsibility to take care of her needs now. And so hers, let's say, a lot of those uh, would tend to be, or not a lot, but, but some would tend to be emotional. The need for connection, the need for um, uh, that, that heart connection. And she may feel that on a greater level than I do. Well, it's not that she's just like a ball and chain and my wife just needs so much. No, her needs are my needs. I'm, it's my responsibility to take care of them. That's why Paul says, he who loves his own, uh, own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself um, just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones, for this reason, now hear this. This is probably going to tie everything this morning together right here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I want everybody to hear this. Paul is saying all these very practical things about marriage, and it all culminates with saying this whole picture of marriage is actually an image. It's, a, it's an earthly image, a pattern that God has given us to represent a celestial higher reality that is more enduring called the marriage between Christ and the church. Let me mess up our minds up a little bit here this morning. There is only one marriage that will endure into eternity. Only one. It is the marriage of Jesus and the church. It trumps all. Jesus himself said that in the kingdom of God, we neither marry nor are married. There's, there, there, this marriage, then, will not be this in heaven. So it begs the question, well, what's the point? What are we doing here? It's just like some, it's till death to us part, but it's not eternal. When I go to heaven and when she goes to heaven, we will be a part of the bride that is married to one, Jesus and all of this is a pattern. So what is the point? The point is, all of this is boot camp. Marriage is training grounds for something that will go into eternity. My true goal in marriage is to be conformed into the image of Jesus in this marriage. To do my part, regardless of what she gives to me, to do my part and to worship him and to honor him and as a husband, perhaps, I could say my part is the honor of taking my lead, taking my cue from Jesus, who is the head of his church, and to look at that as a pattern for how I treat her. Her role is to take her cue and to be able to say that she's beginning now, boot camp, to tr practice being the bride now, which she, all of us will eventually be 
those who have received Jesus will be on into eternity. When we understand that this isn't the part that matters. It's about the reward that goes on to eternity based on how we do what we do here on earth. Then we can function in our marriages properly. As long as we're looking at what I get from the other, marriage begins to fail. And with that, I'm going to pass it on to Minda. Good. So I'm going to go back to that <clears throat> verse that makes everybody cringe. Verse, uh, I'll read 21 and 22 again. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So submitting to one another. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So that word submit can make everybody feel uncomfortable. And it's because that word doesn't fit very well into our culture today. Um, and I think the reason it doesn't is because that word has been abused. That concept has been abused. For so long it was abused that the culture kicked back against it. And, um, and that word can, can be used to force. Because be, the word submit actually means to yield. Um, and it actually says here, wives, submit yourselves. But it's been abused when that word submit has been something that is forced. So submission is something that is given. We submit ourselves. It's not something that is taken. And to understand the heart of submission, we have to understand the context of this passage of scripture, the context that submission happens in, which Paul just described, which is the love of Christ and his church, which is this beautiful picture of this mystery of love between Christ and his church. And when we look, as Paul just, just explained, when we look at how Christ loved his church, it's a picture of servant leadership, that Jesus laid down his life for his church, for his bride, and uh, it's in that context of sacrificial love that we as this church submit to Jesus, right? We, we find it easy to submit to Jesus because we know his love for us. So it's in that context of sacrificial love that we submit ourselves as wives to the loving leadership of our husbands. It's in that context of sacrificial love that submission is easy. Now, obviously, most men are not going to be as perfectly loving as Jesus. Um, and we even need to acknowledge that some men don't know how to love. Some men are even abusive. And God is not asking women to submit to abuse. God's perfect intention is that women would submit to love. That's what he had in mind. That's what his design was. First submitting to his love, and then in that love, in that same love, submitting to their husbands. As it says in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So it's, it's something we do in our hearts as to the Lord because we love him. Uh, we submit to that love in our husbands even though it's imperfect in our husbands. But note that it also says submit to your own husbands. So this is not a command for all women to submit to all men. This is a command for wives to submit to husbands. So how does this love and submission work? And I, I believe this passage gives us some specific direction. In verse 33, it says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the first, the first is addressed to the husband. Each of you love his wife, and then the wife respect her husband. So husbands are to love, wives are to respect. And as Paul said, it's like this perfect foil. It's like this circular pattern that it's, it's, it makes me think of the wedding ring that many of us choose to wear. It's, the, it's this circular pattern uh, that as I am loved sacrificially by my husband, it fosters respect in my heart toward him. And as I give respect to him, it unlocks love in his heart toward me. So as I respect, he, his natural response is love. As he loves, my natural response is respect. So it's supposed to be this ongoing, perfect, circular pattern that happens. And as Paul said, sometimes it gets stuck. And the best way to unstick it is for one person, somebody's got to choose to love. The husband is supposed to take that responsibility. But even when he doesn't, we can, as wives, take that step to show love, and it unlocks that thing, and it begins to work again. Somebody's got to choose to be Christ-like in the moment. Paul mentioned that the Greek word used in this passage for love is agape, 
and he defined it as, as sacrificial love. That is true. It also means to prefer one another, which is what Jesus did for each of us. He preferred us. So I believe as wives and, and as husbands that we need to look for ways to prefer our spouse, to encourage our spouse, to strengthen our spouse. I, we often use the term love language in our home. I don't know if you've heard of that concept. There's a book out about it, about finding out one another's love languages, because everyone's different. Everyone has different things that mean something to them. So I encourage you to find out what is your spouse's love language? What says I love you to them? Because they may not be somebody who just needs to hear it verbally. They may need gifts, or they may need time spent with them. Make sure that you are loving your spouse in their love language. Find out what that means to, uh, to them and make sure you're doing it. And I just want to say we can do that in other relationships, too. We, we should do that in church relationships. We should find out what really makes that person feel loved and do that for them. Just a side note. Um, wives, if your husband is being harsh, if your husband's being prideful and stubborn, that's probably coming from a place of insecurity, which is probably coming from a place of pain in his heart. And you have the powerful, holy opportunity in God to minister love and encouragement to that place of hurt and to strengthen your husband so that he can love you better. Um, and I would say the same to husbands. Husbands, if your wife is being harsh, if she's being prideful and stubborn, it's probably coming from a place of pain. She's hurt somewhere on the inside. And you may have hurt her or maybe she's hurt some other way, but you have the holy powerful opportunity to encourage her to speak love and healing to that place in her heart and to unlock respect and love in her heart even when the other party doesn't deserve it even when your spouse doesn't deserve it to look past that behavior and realize there's something underneath that that I can actually speak to and help lift them so that they can love better and this will strengthen our marriages your words and your response is so powerful in your marriage just to have a, a shift in response can shift things entirely. It's so powerful. So obviously we don't have a perfect marriage, and at times we struggle just like anybody else would. But I would say that when we choose to do these things we're talking about, when we choose to say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't working, this is not going well, this is not pleasant, whichever one of us chooses to apply these principles of love and respect and honor, it shifts it. It like unsticks it. And when we choose to act like Jesus, we reap the powerful benefits of a union in marriage. You can be struggling in marriage and you just begin to apply these principles and you get to operate in supernatural power that is beyond where you're at in your own understanding of marriage when we choose to be like Jesus. Um, in January, we will been, have been married 23 years. And I, I love to encourage everybody to get married. And you must marry the right person. You should marry somebody who loves Jesus so that they can love you well. But unless you feel called to a life of celibacy, I encourage people to get married because I think it's a wonderful opportunity to see and experience this mystery that we're talking about, to understand the love of Christ on another level. Um, I think, you know, we as the church, um, we, as we choose to love Jesus, he refines us. He, he works in us. He shapes us. He molds us into his image. And I think marriage is one of the ways that he does that, as Paul's already referred to. It's not easy, but it's, I think that's part of the thing. It's part of the design is that it, it refines us. It shapes us. It shapes our character to shape us more into the image of Jesus. Marriage does that. Church relationships do that. Family relationships do that. They're designed to shape us into the image of Jesus. We learn how to communicate. We learn how to love. Um, so don't shy away from relationships. We need those relationships in our life to shape us into the image of Jesus. So I just want to encourage us to focus on loving like Jesus. And as Paul said, to not uh, live in relationship expect for what we're going to get out of it, but what we're going to give in it and, and not basing it on one another's behavior. And again, it takes, it does take two willing parties. And I realize that. I realize that, you know, you can say, you can make all the right decisions. And if someone, if your partner is not making all the right decisions, that is, that is a challenge. But it, again, it is amazing when one chooses to live like Jesus, what it will unlock, the potential that it unlocks, if the other person will respond to that, um, to love in Jesus's way. Everybody do their part. That's kind of the thing. So uh, Peter, why don't you uh, get into chapter six?
actually didn't read this first. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now we go into chapter 6, verse 1. Peter's going to bring us out here. Yeah, so I'm going to be sharing from Ephesians 6, like he just said. And um, yeah, so just picking up right where they left off. um, If you want to go to Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1, and then through to verse 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That specific, those three words hit me or have hit me very heavily. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So just some context to those three verses. Um, These verses take place in New Testament, New Covenant times, basically um, post-Jesus and his crucifixion for us. In the Old Testament, God laid out ten commandments for his people to live by and to follow. And this, these three verses are so, so significant um, and something that I've really been, been taking away is that this is the only commandment, the first commandment and the only commandment that comes with a promise attached to it. And therefore, there must be some... Um, extra significance attached to this, this thing of children honoring and obeying their parents in the Lord. And, um, and there's a promise that God gives to us that as we do this as children, that as children do this, that it will go well with us. So it's not even for the good of our parents, it's for the good of children. It's for our good, which just shows the amazing blessings of the Lord, that he, as we follow his word in him, it actually turns around and it's good for us, which is just amazing to think about. And some of the um, practical benefits of children honoring parents is that it brings us closer to our parents, number one. Um, I um, am a child. I mean, kind of. Um, I am... I turned 18 like a few months ago so I'm technically like an adult or like whatever but I live under my parents roof my responsibility as a child and for the rest of my life actually is going to be to honor and respect these two people who are my parents and it brings me closer to them my parents are genuinely some of my best friends definitely some of my closest relationships in this world more and more importantly than anything else as we honor and obey our parents it brings us closer to God and that's because we're following the word of God. And it's so important that we, that we follow this word of God, not just as rule following, but that we do it in the Lord, that we're doing all that we do unto him. And I'm going to get to that later. And then also just the practical benefits of as we honor and respect whatever our parents have to say, we mature and we grow as people and... Um, more importantly than anything else, hopefully we are maturing and growing, like dad said, like mom said, into the image of Jesus. That's what's more important than anything else um, as far as maturity goes. And then additionally, unrelated to what our parents can give us, um, there's a spiritual promise from the Lord that we will live long on the earth, and not just that we'll live long, that it will go well with us. So the Lord has our best intention is He has our best intention in mind, which is, like I said, just so amazing. And it personally um, definitely hits me very heavily. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Um, I think for a long time, like, this is definitely like a verse that I've heard quoted a lot. Like, I've grown up in church my whole life, and the thing of honoring and obeying your parents, it just seemed like a thing that I have to do, like, okay, I have to honor my dad, I have to honor my mom, and even though they're kind of frustrating sometimes, I just got to do it, just got to do it, but, but if I'm honoring and obeying my parents in the Lord, that means that I'm doing it from a place of being filled with Jesus, and as I'm filled with Jesus, I can live unto him, and unto him means living for him and with him, so, for children out there who have 
maybe not the best relationship with their parents. We are following the word of God, honoring and obeying unto Jesus, which means for Jesus. That makes this thing possible because my parents, they are amazing people. They're great parents, but they do things sometimes that make me want to dishonor them and make me want to disobey them. Like, like just like that's the reality. Like I'm not perfect. They're not perfect. But if I am living unto the Lord, that gives me an ability to do this thing and have imperfect people raise an imperfect person. It's a whole cycle of imperfect people living unto Jesus. All of this is actually unto Jesus, um, for Jesus and with Jesus. It's that constant loop of everything that we do should be for Jesus and with Jesus. Um, and um, like I said, we're definitely imperfect people. I'm definitely imperfect. I've like I've definitely had moments where I have dishonored and disobeyed these two people, um, but um, but by and large I have massive respect for them and I seek to more fully respect them and obey them and um, live by some of the things that they've taught me and just yeah like respect and obey. Um, but like I've said, they they have done things before that frustrate me and that make me want to go against what Jesus would have me to do. Um, but there is an ability in those moments as children where our parents, um, where our parents um, are doing frustrating things potentially, or um, like maybe even they are kind of out of line in a sense. Um, um, but there is an ability in those moments to choose um, to honor and obey, not even unto our parents, but choose to honor and obey unto Jesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Just so always making sure to make this thing a thing of being unto the Lord. And um, just to kind of finish things off, um, just while we're children, while we live under the responsibility of our parents, just practically our parents should be the primary people speaking into our lives, shaping us and forming us. And that's just like the practical reason as to why we need to be submitted to them and honoring them because um, that's part of how we're formed and ultimately formed and in, formed into the image of Jesus. So, yeah. Thank you, Peter. So, um, well done, sir. So, um, <clears throat> I think let's move on into f parenting. And, um, and I think just to kind of tag on to what Peter just said at the end there, parents are to give, albeit imperfect, everything that we have to our children so that they can stand on our shoulders. So that's kind of like the biblical idea of it going well with them. Even if you have imperfect parents, like, par like parents have something to impart to the, to the kids. And so it, it will never be imparted unless a child honors and obeys to receive. So let's move on to parenthood uh, in verse um, 4. And you fathers. So hit pause there. You're going to notice that Paul does not even mention mothers. And that certainly is not because mothers are unimportant in this picture of child raising. Quite the opposite mothers have an incredibly important part, but Paul is addressing the fathers. And that is a significant issue because it is like the husband is the leader, the, the one who is accountable for the marriage. Uh, the wife is accountable for her part in the marriage, but the husband is accountable for the marriage. The father is the head of the house. He's to, and the accountability rests with him. Can I, I just mention, you will notice in Genesis chapter 3, Eve is the first one to eat the fruit. And yet nowhere in Old or New Testament do we see the accountability or the blame given to Eve. It is, it is every single time Adam is to blame. But Eve is the one who ate the fruit. 
What's the point there? Adam had been given charge. The accountability rests with Adam. So it's not to say that Eve has no place. It's not to say that the mom has no place. Quite the opposite. It's to say that the ultimate responsibility lies with the father. I think in our culture, we tend to see the exact opposite. The mom is the one who steps into that place. Why? Because dads are MIA. Dads aren't taking the role, so mom has to do something. And we need to, in the church, undo this. Not to say moms, again, I keep saying it's not to say moms don't have an incredibly significant role. It's that the husbands have to, I mean, the fathers have to take the responsibility. So, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. So start there. Don't provoke your children to wrath. What is that speaking of? That's speaking of something that gets birthed into the heart of a child because of a father not doing his part the way he's supposed to do. It builds wrath. Wrath being anger and resentment that comes from emotional neglect, which if a, if a father, the, the antidote to that is simply a father knowing his responsibility that my, my son and my daughter's emotion, their, 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 their uh, headspace, I need to be aware of where they are in their heart. I need to be in that place with them, helping them along in life. The opposite, of course, would be emotional neglect, disciplining wrongly. In other words, not disciplining in order to instruct, but disciplining because I'm irritated with you, so I'm going to pop you. That, that will build up wrath. And then thirdly, I would say being misunderstood or not being heard. If a child feels as though they, they cannot speak, they cannot, they're, they're, there's no open door, there's no interest in, in, in hearing my perspective, uh, it, it builds up wrath. And those are just three things. Obviously, there's a whole multitude of others, but I think those are three biggies. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but instead of that, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so I think basically what Paul is saying here is fathers own the responsibility of what it is to be a parent, which is bringing the child up in the, in the training and admonition of the Lord. So can I point that out, that this is not just your training and admonition. This isn't you unilaterally deciding what your child needs. This is you, firstly, knowing the Lord. How are you going to train a child in the things of the Lord if you don't know the Lord? So this is training in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but it's for the purpose of the child being trained into all of what God has for them. That's our goal with John, David, and Peter is bringing them into a place and give everything that we have from the Lord so that they can run further than us and, and so on and so forth. So I think a couple, three things that would help us to do that, train our child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is not an exhaustive list, but three biggies. One would be discipline with instruction. So public enemy number one there would be to, as I said earlier, to discipline without just out of your anger at the child, as opposed to being a tool of instruction so that they benefit. Discipline is not for the parent's benefit. It's not because they're frustrated. Discipline is to help a child learn the way that they should go. So every time, when, when these guys were younger, every time that they got in trouble with us, there would be an execution of the punishment, and there would be a moment where we, I held them and I explained to them what they did that was wrong. And then I gave them an opportunity to make it right, to apologize and to, to say, and then there was definitely a, a hugging. There was a physical affirmation to let them know, I love you. This is not breaking our relationship. You follow? So discipline with instruction. Another thing I would say is share your life. The Bible talks about like, and you're waking up, and you're going to sleep, and as you're going, to be telling your children about the things of God in De Deuteronomy. And uh, so, I mean, Minda and I are very intentional with that. Not to say that we're cramming the Bible down our kid's throat. The point is, 
everything, anything that I have from God, uh, I want to give to them. So how I've learned to, to, to know God, my relationship with him, bring my, my kids into that space. How I've learned to study the word, bring them into that space. How I've learned how to pray and whatever I've been taught by the Holy Spirit on how to pray, bring them into that place. How I've taught, uh, the Lord has taught me to have relationships with people, help them to develop in that. Uh, how to, you know, things in business, things that I've done. Anything that I have that could be useful just to share the life the ways that I've failed. Open up. Let, let, let the kids know this is real. Let them see your clay feet, you know, and, and the struggles that you have had and what you've learned in those struggles. All of that, I think, is helpful so that when, you know, they become a full-fledged adult like this young man here who's now 18, still very much financially dependent on us. Uh, <laughs> so <coughs> watch it. Um, so when, when they're in that place, they can, they can soar with everything that we could have possibly given them. On the flip side, I would say the third thing there would be to be involved in the speaking, into, to hear from them. So, to give, so it's not all about just teaching. It's about finding out what's going on in the heart. So a little tool we used to do with, when they were younger is every night— uh, and we still try to do this, is have a dinner, an actual dinner where we sit down and eat and talk and look at each other without devices. And uh, we, we used to do, we don't do this anymore because it's a little juvenile, but we used to do thorns, roses, and buds. Go around the table, everybody say your thorn, which is your prickly thing from the day, what, what was unpleasant, your rose, which was your favorite part of the day today, and then the bud, the thing that you're looking forward to. That simple little thing, or whatever you guys do, or that just have something to, f that simple little thing would, would, would unearth the things that are going on in their heart. It would provide a platform for us to know what are they struggling with, a platform to understand what gifts God has given them, uh, to be able to affirm wisdom that we see developing in them, to be able to see that they're not seeing this correctly and they need to be helped. If we didn't have little moments like that, we would have never been able to speak in and help them in their journey to maturity. So little things like that, but it just comes from taking the responsibility. It's like your job. So, to, so to, it's, an awesome, it's an awesome job, honestly. Yeah, it's difficult, but I, I, I don't know of a great higher privilege in my life than raising these two, these two boys. Uh, it's, it's fun, actually. So, of course, we've got good ones. Um, and then let's move on. Now, now let's, let's prepare to be challenged, okay? Let's talk about the workplace where rubber meets the road for, for some of us. Um, it is amazing how easy it is as a Christian to leave this space, the Sunday morning space, because this is like the spiritual space, right? This is where we are spiritual. But then on Monday when we're at the office or where we're cleaning houses or we're doing whatever we do professionally, uh, that's not like the church space. And so we act differently, and everybody understands, right? Your actual life is the most important from God's perspective, not just the way you act around church folk. And if we are acting significantly different around church folk than we are in those spaces where church folk aren't watching us, we are, in fact, hypocrites. And it's just an, an opportunity to grow, if, if that is the case for us. So let me just say, starting in verse 5 here, bond servants, which for us, in our day and age, this is speaking of employees, people who are employed by a company or a person or whatnot. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, which again, for our sake, would be employers, your bosses according to the flesh. So that's, according to the flesh, that means you have one master, that's Jesus, but here on this earth, you have a boss, a master according to the flesh, and, and, and which is essentially being validated by the scripture here. With fear and trembling, insincerity of heart, as to Christ. Are you seeing a pattern here? That the husband relates to the wife, because of his relationship with Jesus. The, the wife does to the husband, the same. Children to the 
to the uh, parents because of the relationship with Jesus and vice versa. And even here in the workplace, your relationship with your work authorities is part of your expression of worship to Jesus. And you may say, yeah, but you don't know who my boss is. Well, the exact same thing could be said to the children. It doesn't say children honor and obey your parents when they're honor, honorable. It says to honor and obey your parents. Now, obviously, we're not talking about issues of harmfulness and abuse. But you know what I'm saying. Our job is not to look at our boss and say, oh, are they, I think I can honor them now, but with that other thing, I'm not going to honor them. No, it says to uh, obey uh, your bosses with fear and trembling and sincerity of Christ. So I can remember uh, after I became a believer and found, you know, kind of a, a uh, became what we say born again at the, as a senior in high school and I was still rather worldly, but I began to, something changed on the inside, this newfound faith, and I started seeking the will of God with everything I was doing. And, and I went back from college, I went back to Atlanta, where I was from, and, and I went back to the candy store to work during the Christmas break at Happy Herman's Candy Store. And, um, and I, was, I was there during this break, and, um, and I was just like praying more, and I was seeking the will of God, and I'm start, starting to wonder, you know, how, do, how does this really, God, like I want to do your will wherever I am, and so I go into this candy store, and I'm seeking to, to do, you know, I'm, just, I'm prayerful now, and I'm conscious of God, and conscious of him watching me, and, and, uh, and it started to massively change the way I did my candy storing, and I'm cleaning the, I'm Windexing the counters, and I'm in all the shelves and stuff, and I'm doing all the stuff you're supposed to do, and one day, my boss, who definitely was not a Christian, comes to me and says, uh, what has happened to you, Paul? Like, you were, like, amazing all of a sudden. Like, like just a few months ago, you were, and I, and I remember I was like, huh, well, I mean, actually, it's like I've, I've started to take, like, my faith more seriously, and, like, I'm following Jesus. And I remember you're just looking at me like, huh, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, I asked, yeah. My point in all of that is, your relationship with Jesus interprets into how you live in your job. Listen to this. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, which gets back into that motive. If you're doing your, your job with obedience and doing the, the, the good work because you want your boss to see you, guess whose interest you're actually thinking about? Your own. You're doing it for what you get. Now, there's good news you do get, oftentimes, out of doing the right thing in the workplace. But if your motive is to get, for you to get, it's your, your cause is lost already. It is not with eye service nor being a man pleaser. It is to please the Lord. That's the only foundation, motivation, that's going to actually sustain in this thing. So, uh, but as uh, bond servants, again, or as employees of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the issue. You actually approach your workplace the exact same way you approach moments of worship. I'm in worship, I'm seeking the Lord, I'm recognizing his greatness, I'm declaring his greatness, and I'm seeking to yield my heart to him. You go into work with that exact same heart attitude. You're conscious of his greatness, that he deserves all of your energy and how you behave and how you think and how you believe, and you're seeking his will in the workplace. If we can do that, and can I maybe just add in there, if our relationship with God is more about what he gives to me than being smitten by what he's already done for me, and as a natural response, wanting to give my all to him, none of what we've talked about today will work. The more we understand the love of God in Christ and our heart response to give everything back to Christ, that is how all of this works. And can I say that Christ is the one who initiated it? You don't have to conjure it up or try to make it happen. You just ponder the cross and what Jesus has already done for you. 
And that should lead you to want to give your heart to him. So you don't have to make it happen, but you do have to position yourself. <coughs> Can I say that this, what I'm saying actually works? If we will do what the scripture is saying to do, to obey and to uh, even treat it with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, your performance on the workplace will make you indispensable. And uh, you can't do it for a promotion or open doors, but I can almost guarantee you promotion will happen, open doors will happen. Listen to this. With goodwill service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. There is a reward, both eternally and here on this earth, from doing the will of God in obedience and in faith. And so you're not doing what you do for the sake of that boss that you otherwise think deserves none of your obedience, right? You're not doing it for that boss. You're doing it to honor and serve him. Regardless of whether your boss is worthy, you serve him, God will, will, uh, will see that you are advanced in God's purpose for you. Whether he is a slave or free, verse 9, and you masters, employers, do the same things to them, in other words, do the will of God from the heart, giving up threatening, in other words, harsh treatment, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Master, the employers are supposed to have the same heart attitude just because they're the ones on this earth with authority in the workplace does not suggest any kind of um, privilege or exemption. There is one master overlooking all of them, whether they're an employer or an employee. And one day, the privilege of being the employer will matter nothing. And that day that we face the master, it was all about did we do our part and were we faithful to him? And so that's the whole, the whole thing, whether it's your relationship as a child, your relationship as a parent, your relationship as a spouse, all of it is fueled by the reality that this life here on this earth is simply an opportunity to collect some rewards that you'll take on into eternity. Um, I, yes, there are rewards that, that come on this earth, but it, this is boot camp. This is training. You will never have the privilege of serving God in the midst of the adversary, and in the midst of the, uh, the deception and the, the opposition that we spiritually face in this world. You'll never have the privilege of giving God obedience and praise in the midst of that after you die. When you're in heaven, there's no—it's easy— there's no, there's no reward given for anything you do in heaven because it's already done. Here, we have the opportunity to actually grow into the image of Jesus. And, and to, like I say, not that we do it to collect rewards, but this is training for that place. And so that's what you have to treat uh, your workplace and all these other relationships. If you can see it through that lens, then, then we can have a eternal perspective on, on how we live and it will change. Can I pray?